0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once more to the Working Man's Honest Bicycle Program. This is a podcast for petty discussion of bikes and bike racing and how we love those things. This week we have a special, the first part of a two-part special on the classics. We're going to preview them and talk a little bit about them. Joining me as usual, I am Greg. Uh, he is Matteo. Hey, Matteo.
1: Hey Greg, how you doing over there?
0: I'm doing really good, Mario. In fact, I'm really excited because it's not just the two of us who are going to be discussing the spring classics. Indeed, we have a very special guest joining us. He is a contributor to Bicycle Magazine. He is the editor in chief of the Pavi Blog. He is America's foremost spring classics pundit. Ladies and gentlemen, Wit Yost. Hey guys, how you doing? Pretty good. We're really. I'm really for. I just got I just gotta say, I'm really excited that you're on the show, Witt. I'm really glad to have <laughs> you. Uh we're gonna yeah, this is gonna be great. Okay. I'm okay. happy to I'm, be here. I'm really excited. Awesome. Awesome. So I think that we should start just uh by in, I mean, we've introduced you, but but maybe you should introduce yourself a little bit. So why just tell us a little bit about yourself and what, what's given you such a passion for the spring classics? You know, why why do we why do we want to hear what you have to say about him, other than that you seem to make pretty good picks?
2: Uh, I think it goes back to... I started uh, cycling competitively. I started, I guess, becoming a passionate fan back in the late 90s, the uh, the heyday of Johan Museu and André Schmiel. I'll never forget reading Velo News on the back of uh, in the back of a school bus a couple weeks after André Schmiel won Paris-Roubaix in 1994, and just... Looking at the the mud, the carnage, the looks on guys' faces and thinking, wow, this is really cool. I have no idea why, because I'm just a skinny American suburban white kid, but Ukrainian guys riding over cobblestones just sounds really awesome. And um, a good friend of mine who kind of got me into cycling was uh, was and is a much better uh, actual rider than I am. He was actually going back and forth to Belgium to race. Uh, a couple times a year, and so just hearing stories from him about the racing culture, what it was like to to, to be there, it just was something that uh, I just kind of fell in love with. So um, I wasn't a very good cyclist, uh, you know, during my time racing in Belgium, but uh, I certainly uh, think I'm pretty good to talk about it and write about it, and uh, every once in a while I tend to pick a race uh, pretty well too, as you said.
0: <laughs> yeah, and wait,
1: I I think that you can elaborate on that a little bit, if you so choose, because you also spent a little while seeing some of these races from the inside.
2: That is true. yeah. after I, um, after graduating from college, uh, I went back to Europe and uh, spent some time there studying. And uh, after I kind of came to my senses and realized that I really am I'm not here anymore to to, to study. I'm really here to just be in the culture and in, in the bike racing culture. Uh, I kind of fell into an opportunity to be an assistant DS with uh, Mercury Vitel at the end of the 2000 season and for all of 2001. So yeah, at 24 years old, I was flying to, found myself flying to France, setting up a service course, uh, driving around, setting up meetings with Pavel Tankov, Peter van Piedegem, Gert van Bont, um, Floyd Landis, and yeah, driving driving a team car in races like Paris-Nice and the Dauphiné and uh, Classica San Sebastian. It was a uh, really awesome. Uh, you know, something that I look back on and, and say to myself, how did that happen? Um, <laughs> but it did. And, uh, and it was awesome. And, uh,
1: and, and yeah, I love, I love talking about that, telling stories about that too. I, for one, look forward to your memoirs because having read some of what you've already written about that time, uh, it's terrific. Yeah. And, and, uh, so one of the things that, um, I've always been really intrigued by is that, you know, partially your, uh, if I may call it obsessive, uh, fandom, not really fandom, um, combined with your, your really inside experience has given you just a a keen eye for kind of looking at what's happened, knowing about races, knowing about riders and being able to make some, some really terrific picks based on what we've seen. So kind of given that, um, I'd really be interested in reviewing the, uh, the early bits of the spring classic season that we've, we've gotten glimpses of, you know, we've seen Blad, Kern Kerner Brussels Kerner, uh, and Strada Bianche being the big races that we've had so far this season. Um, I think they've each been pretty interesting races. Um, and I'm interested in your views on those. What, what really caught your eye in each of those and what's, what's super noteworthy and what makes you go kind of, Hmm, for, for the next couple months of bike racing.
2: Well, um, I guess first off, we have to talk about Edik's quick step and their sort of disastrous performance at the uh, at the Omloop. loop. Um, you know, it certainly was fun to dissect at the time the reasons why they why they lost, what they should have done, what they didn't do. Um, at the end of the day, though, I think they're going to be fine. You know, Tom Boonen, something we can talk about later. I definitely think that he is starting to enter the, the, the kind of twilight of his, uh, contention for big cobbled monuments, but he's still Tom Boonen and he's still going to win a lot of races and he still might win another cobbled monument this year, or next year. Nikki Terpstra is going to be just fine. Um, and obviously the next Bar is going to be, going to be just fine as well. They traditionally do not. Do very well in the Umloop. You know, boonin lost, uh, he lost a sprint like a, like a junior to Sepp von Marka in 2012. And then he went on and won everything else on the spring calendar practically. And Nicky Terpstra proved himself to be a bit of a head case without a radio in last year's Umloop and still went on to win Paris Roubaix. So, you know, I, I think, I think we, we tend to put a lot of stock in the Umloop. Uh, because it's a great race and it's and it's a terrific race to watch, but it's also the first cobbled semi-classic of the year. And so we it, it, it's really easy to try to use that to project forward. But no rider that's ever won the Omloop has won the Tour of Flanders in the same season. And plenty of riders that have lost the Omloop have gone on to do great things later on. So I'm not too, too worried about Edix quick step. In terms of individual riders, Sepp van Marke without a doubt is the strongest rider of the spring right now. And I'm actually starting to get a little bit worried that he's been too strong too soon. Not that he won't be able to hold his form through to the Tour Flanders and Paris-Roubaix, but just that by the time we get there, he's going to have such a bullseye on his back that even if he is the strongest rider in those races, he's not going to be able to win them because teams are just going to mark him too heavily. But, but but his performance in the Umloop was fantastic his performance in Strada Bianca on Saturday was fantastic. I really thought that he was going to catch those guys just uh, just coming into that to that final climb. Um, biggest thing for him is just a teammate. You know, I think uh, uh, I don't know what do we call them. I call them Lotto Jumbo, uh, <laughs> but you know,
0: I only just losing... started doing the Jumbo thing on I don't know one of the Eurosport feeds. And anyway,
2: uh, I just call yeah, I... them the other Lotto. The other, the yellow, the banana lotto. Yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> let's go with that one.
2: <laughs> but but you know, I think I think for him not having a rider like Lars Boom is uh is going to prove costly. Just because I don't really know who his who his number two is going to be, who his lieutenant is going to be. I mean, I know that he's got Martin Weynants, who's a good rider, but he's not the kind of rider that you know when there's twenty thirty k left in a two hundred and sixty k cobbled classic is going to be there, you know, able to chase down moves and take a little bit of the pressure off you. So I think Van Mark is really going to find himself having to win races sort of on his own
1: for the most part.
0: Do you think maybe he's going to be kind of... A...
1: Go ahead, yeah. I think that's a, that sounds like a particularly difficult proposition for Van Mark because he is a strong kid, you know? He has just had some amazing performances in races that he has not won. And then when all the teams pack up and, you know, head uh, away from Flanders at the end of April, he kind of, he sort of disappears, you know, it's, uh, it's like if there aren't cobbles, he's not, he's not there.
2: Well, we see that a lot with, uh, with, with riders that do well in these races, you know, um, Van Marka lately has been reminding me a little bit of like a Peter Van Piedegum, who obviously I knew from my days at Mercury. But, you know, Van Piedegim, he won a couple um, loops before he won his first uh, Tour Flanders. You know, sometimes it just takes riders a little bit of time to just sort of put it all together in those races, especially since luck plays such an important role. Um, but Peter, you know, he, he would try to work himself into shape in the fall for, uh, for Worlds and races like that. But, but let's face it, when you're, when you're Tom Boonen, when you're Peter Van Piedegim, uh it's all about the spring and everything else after that is a bit of an anticlimax. i think
0: yeah and you know even tom tom boonin is really these days disappearing after the spring as well absolutely the, the days of him going in and doing grand tour sprints are pretty much over yep so all right so
1: speaking of speaking of uh days of grand tour sprints being pretty much over of uh, brussels kerna saw cavendish get uh, a win in a what what looked like a pretty hard race and uh he's been on a gentle decline for a couple of years you know he had a few years where he was just unbeatable in july and uh and then you know he had a couple crashes and a bit of bad luck and a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and he's had to he's had to fight it out a lot more, and he's had fewer wins. Um, is is his result in current Brussels? Current maybe an indication that uh, that the old Cav is back.
2: You know, it's funny when you said the phrase "a gentle decline." I kind of thought to myself, I, I I don't know if I'd say he's declining. I think that you know Cav had just an incredible few seasons there for a while that. I think it would be hard for any rider to sustain at that level. And I think that, you know, if he hadn't had those seasons, he would still be considered an incredible cyclist, you know, and I think he is. Um, I think part of what it is, is that the rest of the sport has caught up to him in the sense that, you know, you have other teams that have kind of looked at that model of how do we build a lead out around a sprinter, like Cavendish, you know, I think we saw last year that uh, that uh, Giant, Argos, Shimano, One T, Four I, whatever the heck they've been over the last few seasons, you know, have really sort of studied what HTC was doing and then what Quick Step was doing, and said, hey, let's let's put together a similar a similar lead out. Let's let's build our tour around winning field sprints. And now Marcel Kittel is kind of the um, you know. The, the the king of the mountain right now And until somebody else And, and another team more so Can, can, can show an ability to, uh, to knock him off He's going to stay there But I think Cav is still a fantastic rider He's a great sprinter I mean he's won I believe six races now so far Maybe seven um, So far this season And yeah I think Kerna Brussels Kerna Is definitely an indication That he's got his confidence back He's kind of got his swagger back uh, I think for him it's important to win a race immediately following his team's complete misstep the day before. So I think for him to be the one that sort of, you know, rights the ship, so to speak, uh, I think I think
0: it means a lot for him. It means a lot for the team. And
2: I, I think, yeah, I think we're going to see big things from him uh,
0: later on in the year. Sort of on that note, Witt, how, how important do you think it is that he's won – you know, uh, quote unquote, a one of the real races, a real opener for the season, as opposed to one of the newer. Because he was, you know, he he got a win in San Luis, and he did pretty well in uh, the Middle East as well. How do you how do you think Karna Brussels kerna stacks up to that in terms of confidence building?
2: I think it's a big win, but you know, I think we also need to remember that there were a lot of guys that weren't there. You know, uh, I mean, if you if you really if you really want an indicator of where Cav is early, let's, uh, let's maybe target the scale to place in, um, you know, in between Flanders and Roubaix, you know, that it's, it's that mid Wednesday, it's that Wednesday in the middle of the week. It used to be the day of Gent-Wevelgem. I still wish Gent-Wevelgem were still there, but I'm just an old school person, I guess. (laughs) Um, but, but, but that's that sort of pancake flat classic around Antwerp where, where Calves won it a bunch of times, Kittles won it, um. You know, a lot of field sprinters come out there for that. So I want to see Cav go head to head against Kittle. I want to see him go against Matthews. You know, I, I want to, I want to, I, I think he's going to need at least to beat Kittle before he his confidence is really going to be, um, you know, at its at its highest heading into the tour. But that's a long way off as well. Sure.
0: Are we ready to maybe move on to Strada Bianchi uh, and close out with that?
1: Yeah, let's do. We uh we hit on Set Ben Mark, uh quite a bit, and you know I think one of the notable things about his performance there for me, this is just to to back up a little bit, um was how long he hung in a race that kind of ought not suit him. I mean for no. 200 kilometers, that thing is just going up and down. And like I said, you know he's a he's a big kid. Yeah. Um, so I I love that he was kind of close to the finale, but I didn't uh, expect to see him there. I also didn't really expect to see Stebar uh drop the crap out of Valverde on the climb. <laughs> yeah, on a personal the, on a
0: personal note that was delightful though.
1: That was <laughs> Yeah. Well, it I I mean I wit I imagine you'll feel the same way that you love seeing Van avermet really be the first one to just fire this enormous shot across Valverde's bow.
2: Yeah, you know, I it's funny as I watched it I was I was thinking to myself was that a good move? Because certainly he, they had to be thinking that Valverde was gonna, you know, if you're sitting in that break, you're thinking Valverde's gonna 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 drop the crap out of me on this climb. But if you go back and you look at it, I think that Stebar certainly was playing a bit more poker. And if you break it down, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw that Valverde was probably on the front of that break definitely more than more than the other two. And I think that Stebar was kind of sort of playing the odds that maybe Valverde is going to do a little bit more work than he thinks he's up for. And if I can just put one really good dig into him on that climb and get a gap, I can I can hold it. And certainly that's what happened. I mean, Valverde didn't really even put up much of a fight when Stebar attacked. Um Van Avermont, yeah, he did what he had to do. He attacked I think with 12 or 13k out, which which was a bit long in mm-hmm. my opinion. Um but uh but certainly no one no one's going to fault him for it because he I think everybody knew heading in that that that, that he was the weakest rider of uh, of the three at that time.
0: Yeah. And another second. Did you uh, sorry. And another you go for it, yeah, well, another second place for uh, Greg Van Averbeet as well so how about how about that?
2: You know, I think I read something in one of the in one of the Belgian newspapers and 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 i think I think he basically said that greg's gonna the you know Greg's gonna win a big race when he's not expecting to hmm. and I think van Avermont is one of those riders that just he he almost tries too hard. You know, which is a tough thing to say because, you know, races don't just races like Strata Bianca, the Tor Flint, they don't just fall into your lap. But um, you know, I I think he needs to race with a little more a little more abandon, you know, almost a little more Sep Van Marca. You know, I think Sep Van Marca still races a bit like a bull in a china shop. <laughs> um I think he needs he needs a little more nuance, a little more finesse to his moves. Um but, but I think Van Avermont maybe needs to, to be a bit, a bit more careless. You know, I, I think, I think that Van Avermont, you know, is, it's like he's afraid to lose races rather than trying to win races. And, and I think that as soon as he's, he's, you know, as soon as he can kind of get the monkey off of his back of being Mr. Second through Fourth place, you know, he, he might win something. And I think once he wins something, just, 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 just one good win. I think that's going to kind of flip a switch for him, and I think he'll, win, you know, he'll start winning a lot more.
1: You know what you're describing sounds uh, kind of a, a lot to me like uh, 2013 Paris Roubaix, where uh, Fabian Cancellara and Seth Ben Marca uh, rode into the velodrome together, and that was, you know, that was that race where Cancellara did not look like his old dominant self. You know, he didn't he didn't time trial for 50 kilometers to the victory. He was uh looking around waiting for other people to chase moves. He was really he was he was clinging on to the front of the race desperately and at the end he you know made comments that that was the most difficult victory he'd ever taken. And I think you know that being willing to lose, you know, just that idea that uh, I'm not going to go after everything. I'm not going to try and make the race. I'm going to try and, you know, leave it to as late as possible. Is that kind of what you're describing that the Van Avermaet needs?
2: Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit, a little bit of the poker, you know, and I think Cancelara, that's one of the reasons why he won Flanders last year is because he was, he was bluffing a little bit. He was sitting in that break and, and sometimes just that little, that, that little bit of poker is enough to save, save a bit in your legs and, you know win a win a sprint against three other guys and uh yeah I, I i think you need i think you need to do that
0: yeah well in that that 2013 paris or bay for cancelara seemed to be kind of uh sort of the moment where he finally understood that you know he he couldn't just uh <laughs> just use raw power uh to win races so and actually, it's in and, and was the moment where I thought, oh, maybe maybe an old dog can can learn new tricks because I'd been lamenting for a couple years uh, to myself at at how how stubborn he seemed to be at. While well, I'm going to attack from you know forty kilometers out, and if people mark me, they're just jerks. Uh, <laughs> but, but maybe you know, but in maybe 2013, Conchalera is you know, that meeting point, (laughs) maybe, maybe Van Mark needs to come down a little bit more to that KG level and maybe, uh, GVA needs to kind of come up a little bit to that risk-taking level. Mm -hmm. So, so that's my, that's, that's my analysis for what it's worth. (laughs) And, and of course, sorry, go ahead, Matthew.
1: No, it's all you. Oh,
0: I was just going to say, and, and of course, um, Stebar for you know, of course, uh, a great victory for Steebar. A great victory for Wit, having uh, called that twenty-four hours ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs>
2: It's actually, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about it the other day because I called I called last year in Strada Bianca. So I just must have a thing for I should I should find somebody in Italy that can put some money down on the race for me next year because <laughs> I just I seem to have I seem to have a way of p- picking that that and dwarves door You know, I've I, I seem to do well in both those races.
1: <laughs> you know, it's and it's funny that that you would pick Steve R this year and Kwiatkowski last year because they they also. Look kind of similar on the bike. They've got really similar muscular builds. They're similar size. They're you know they're wearing uh, team colors with their their national champions colors superimposed. Watching this year's race, there was a bit of deja vu because uh, last year Sagan goes on the climb up into Siena first, and Kwiatkowski just counters. And this year, Greg Van Avermaet starts on the lower edge of the climb and Steve R just roars after him and takes the victory. You know, there was this, this quite a bit of similarity between those two victories. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe
0: we should talk about the races themselves a bit as as we kind of get deeper into this. You know, and from a spectator's perspective, you know, or, or I guess a grainy internet feed watcher's perspective, what are the what are the best races to be watching in the spring? you know what are the what are the most entertaining typically anyway? Sorry, that's kind well, of a broad question. well I, let me let, I guess I'll, I'll answer it this
2: way. Um, you know because obviously the Tour of Flanders, you know the the races we've spent the bulk of our time talking about are, are very entertaining to watch, but one we haven't mentioned yet is it's the Friday. Um, I guess what ten days before the Tour of Flanders, um, two Fridays before the Tour of Flanders, the E3 Beka, um semi-classic, which used to be on the Saturday before the Tour of Flanders, but then when there was all the calendar shenanigans and Gent-Wevelgem moved to the Sunday before the Tour of Flanders, um, they thought, oh, well, this will be great. We'll have Harald Beka on. Saturday and we'll have Gent-Wevelgem on Sunday and races will do both. Well, no, they won't do both. They what they did was they started Harald Becker because Harlebeka is kind of considered the ideal Flanders warm up. It's about 200k, covers a bunch of the same climbs, and it's a week before, so riders basically they could go as deep as they wanted to go to try and win the race, but not sacrifice their chances for Flanders the following day. So a lot of guys did that, but then Ghent wevelgem and the organizers said, well, wait a minute, we're used to getting all the star riders as well. And what they did was they would race hard at Harald Becker. they'd show up to Ghent wevelgem they'd start, and then they'd pull out at the first feed zone. So the organizers complained and they said, okay, well, we'll just move Haralbecca to Friday, which is a really random day to have a bike race. It's probably the most important bike race on a Friday that isn't uh, a stage in a multi-day stage race. Um, but nonetheless, it's a fantastic race to watch. It's always exciting. The winner is always worthy. And if you are looking for, you know, we said earlier how a rider has never won the Omloop and then gone on to win the Tour of Flanders in the same season. Lots of riders win Harold and then go on to win Flanders a week later. So if you want to get a good idea of who's going to be, you know, who's going to be up there in uh, in the Tour Flanders, definitely watch the E3. Haralbeka. The E3. It's 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 a race that that's named after a highway, believe it or not, which I guess only only in Belgium. And I don't even think it's called the E3 anymore. I think now it's called the A1. So, but you know, we we call it the 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 steak sauce race, but. Uh,
1: <laughs> Yeah. I I like your comments about the, the predictive capacity of E three versus the Omloop, you know, because uh in the past uh eleven years actually well actually really in, in the the past ten editions, um the the vast majority, eight of them have been won by Boonin or Cancellara. <laughs>
2: yeah Boonin I think's won the race. Boonin's won it what five times, I think he holds the record. Yeah. Um so yeah, I mean it's a race Boonin loves to win. Um Sagan won it last year, and everybody thought, oh, here we go. This is it. This is his year, he's arrived, but then he then he misfired in Flanders and, and he rode well in Rubin. Reba- and again, you know, it's funny, it's kinda like it's it's kinda like what we said about Cavendish. If 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 any other rider had the spring last year that Sagan had we'd be raving about them but because it it's Sagan and because his talent is is through the roof it still feels like a letdown somehow
1: but yeah it was his ascension you know he he kept yep. on getting better so once he leveled off albeit at a very high level it was what you haven't swept the monuments this year yet yeah yep
0: <laughs> yeah tough tough to feel so okay so E3, we're going to put... Let's put E3 Howlbeck up there. There are other... I mean, most of these cobbled classics are uh, pretty good fun to watch. Maybe not Maybe not so much... I don't even know if it's cobbled, actually, because I'm not as, enough of a connoisseur, I suppose, uh, but maybe not so entertaining, uh, Scaldopress or, or whatever, unless you really know what you're looking for. But E3 is... is I have always enjoyed watching that one. And I, I really like you know, watching the last 20 K or so of Milan San Remo. I think that's all almost always really (laughs) tense.
2: Everybody loves the last 20 K of, uh, of, of Milan San Remo coupled with the last five K of Flesh alone. You know, they're, 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 they're both really exciting. It's, uh, (laughs) <laughs> it's the uh, it's the 275k before it that uh is a bit
1: is a bit dry you know i could actually speak for hours on the subject of Milan San Remo because oh, i think it's too. just a, such a perfect race but you know you need the fact that it's just under 300 kilometers long in order to distill that simplicity of of you know the Cipressa, the poggio a descent and then a blistering run and into a finish in order to make that such a captivating like attacker versus sprinter battle any shorter and it's just a a, a sprint
0: yeah and, and I'll go on a, just the the briefest rant about this too because you know Milan and Remo has this reputation it's the sprinter's classic um yeah you know it's always one from a bunch sprint and it's weird it seems to be one of the most consistently misunderstood races out there and I, I suppose this reputation's changing a little bit but a few people now have looked back and I've even done this and if if you look at the last you know ten years, the last fifteen years, uh, but especially the last ten to twelve years or so of Milan San Rainbow, it's it's a, one about half the time from a depleted bunch, and the other half the time by a late break. So it's it's really well balanced as it turns out.
1: Yeah, some people call it you know a, a sprinter's race, and it's it's not. It's it's something it's something a lot more subtle and interesting.
0: Yeah, I, I would say I that, guess <laughs> well I was just gonna say if uh <laughs> if Paris Roubaix is uh you know a big a big bottle of malt liquor, then uh Milan San Remo is a fine Chianti. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's rough.
0: No, wow I like just... I actually like paris Roubaix, but I, I like Milan San Remo better. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, purists. <laughs>
2: I just—I don't know what to say. I'm sorry. This, this, is, this is the first. This is
0: the first and last time that Wit will ever speak to me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I mean it's a great. It's a great. It's a. It is a great race. It's an important race. I. I, I do. I would say, I wish. Well, I, I don't know because I, I definitely am a fan of tradition, and and I and I sometimes I'm resistant to changing things that have been done the way they've been done. But I was really excited last year to see that new finish that they, you know, they, they, they were, they, they basically put a climb in between the Cipressa and the Poggio. And I was, I was looking forward to seeing what that was going to do, you know, just to sort of try and break up the narrative a little bit. Um, yet I was the one that when they got, when they took the mirror out of the tour of Flanders, you know, almost bought a plane ticket and went to the funeral that they staged on the climb itself to sort of <laughs> bury it. Um, you know, so yeah, I think you're right. I, th- I think that, I think that if, if the same groups of riders came to the finish line in a race like the Tour of Flanders or Paris-Roubaix or even Liège-Bastogne-Liège, we would say, what a great addition. This was fantastic. But when it happens in, in milan Sanremo, we we complain that the race is boring and and isn't and isn't hard enough. I think part of that also has to do with the nature of the riders that have won it lately, you know. I mean Simon Garens, um, Gerald cholik I mean, these aren't riders that we're used to winning races of that sort. Garens has certainly since gone on to confirm that he is that kind of rider. But, you know, I I think that I think that Milan Sanremo is a race that sometimes suffers from the rider winning not being the the star rider that everybody envisioned would win i mean if vincenzo Niboli, you know goes on the attack on the poggio and then opens up a gap on the descent and wins solo we're gonna we're once again going to be talking about the greatness of milan Sanremo. but yeah. if uh jürgen rulance wins it everybody's going to be saying you know we need to do something about the finish
0: there. yeah or or you know matt matt goss won it a few years ago and you know hasn't hasn't really confirmed that himself as is actually kind of that class of rider since seriously you
1: that uh, those those handful of riders Goss, garen's choluk uh, i have always had the feeling that milan sanremo might be the, the easiest race to pick a good chunk of the top 5 but the hardest race to pick the winner of that's a really that's a, yeah that's a really good idea yeah i like that
0: well you know you're you're, you're i would agree yeah you're, well you're you're just bringing me around a little bit with to think that you know change change can be good because i actually have railed against the you know oh you know the rcs or who, whoever does it, it organizes it doesn't know you know the, the what they have and all that but yeah you know something there's something to be said for something new and different, something different so
2: just throw in another climb you know i think it's the, it was called the pompiana you know
0: just yep. just put, put that in there it'll happen. just see at least just try it you know it'll happen i think that there were Uh, reasons beyond the organizers control that it didn't and if with any of these races i think it's important to remember people talk a lot and it does matter right and well wait you can tell me if you think i'm on you know on on dope here but you know any of these big spring classics races the ones especially that stretch out past um you know 250 kilometers or so the tactics matter having a strong person with you people to mark matters but but a big a lot of these races are re, are guys just beating the crap out of each other at the end and and basically you know who can who can take just a little bit more you know And Milan San Remo in some ways is the epitome of that but it's it's so hard to really deliver that killer blow on that course and and maybe one more climb will just make it possible to to really kind of twist the knife in a way that yep. you can't do. Absolutely. So we've talked a lot about milan San Remo here. <laughs> Maybe not to... I, I, I guess we'll close the races talk by asking, you know, which of the smaller races, so not the monuments, but which of the smaller races are, are actually the best signposts for what to expect in the major events, right? So, you know, said Omloop is probably not a great indicator of who's going to win Flanders. And by probably, like, it totally isn't. Whereas E3 is kind of a a good indicator of who's going to be, you know, up there at the end. Are, are there any other smaller races that we should look to? Um, it's maybe this is just me, and 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 I I don't
2: know. I I get weird hunches and gut feelings, but I often tend if there is a split in Paris Nice, you know. So sometimes in those early early road stages in Paris Nice. Crosswinds can be an issue. And I, and I think this year there'll be a stage or two like that. I believe it's stage three. But, um, I always like to see which riders and which teams are, are represented in whatever that first group or first echelon is. In 2012, there was a break like that. And Boonen and Terpstra and maybe three quick step guys made that, made that first split. I think Boonen won the stage. And Boone and then went on to win all those classics later on in the month. So I I, I just I feel like sometimes stages in Paris Nice can be a good indicator, you know, just who makes the who makes the split, who doesn't. You know, I think a rider like Tom Boone and a Philippe Gilbert, they go into a race like Paris Nice primarily for training, but uh maybe they pick one day and they say, you know. This is going to be the day that I'm going to go for it. Really dig, really go deep, knowing that I have the rest of the race to uh, to recover. So I, I tend to keep an eye out for performances like that. Mm. Um, not a lot of guys do it anymore, but the first stage of the three days of Depana which is the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, right before the Tour of Flanders, um, oftentimes riders will start. They'll race stage one because stage one is the sort of hillier stage of the three. And so they'll rather than do a long Tuesday training ride, they'll start to Pana. They'll they'll do that first stage and then they'll they'll maybe abandon the next day. Sagan has actually done that the last the last couple seasons. I wonder if we'll see him do it again this year. Hmm. Um, so that that can often be a fun one. A fun one to watch and see who's gonna who's gonna do well there
0: yeah i I wish there it would a little bit easier as a us US fan actually to watch the three days of depana because i think a lot of people don't understand just how completely bonkers that race is
2: yeah that is a crazy that's a crazy race um it's a dangerous race Mm -hmm. um there's a lot of wind uh there are a lot of really nervous um smaller teams that get into it uh and there are a lot of um like trolley tracks, tram tracks in, in a lot of the stages. And it just yeah, it's a dangerous, dangerous race. A lot of riders don't start it anymore because they're afraid they're gonna crash and ruin ruin the next two weeks for them. Um yeah. but it's still a great race nonetheless, and definitely worth watching.
0: It's a you don't hear too much about people winning it, but it's a legit win winning yep. that race. Yeah
1: well i think that's a show for now yeah i think so too i think we're getting on that time of night yeah hey well i had a great time oh yeah Yeah. man thanks for thanks a really good one
0: yeah thanks for joining us wit ladies and gentlemen wit yost so wit if people want to get in touch with you or hear more of your writings or or i guess read more of your writings, things you have to say uh where, where should they go
2: I'd say, well, you can definitely uh, find stuff that I write over at uh, Bicycling Magazine, which is on the internet bicycling.com, um, and certainly on Twitter, uh, at Whit Yost, W-H-I-T-Y-O-S-T. Uh,
0: that's probably a good place. Great. And, of course, you can get in touch with uh, me on Twitter, at Grolby, if you really want to, for whatever reason. Uh, you can get to Matteo, uh, at underscore Matteo, yes?
1: Yes, indeed. And you can find the Working Man's Honest Bicycle Program at standarddouble.com WHBP. And don't be shy about sending us an email or a tweet and arguing with us and the things that we say and the opinions that we have about bicycles and bicycle
0: race. Yes. Email us at uh, honestbikeprogram at gmail.com. And we will catch you next week. Thanks so much for listening.